0: You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. As we head into the start of summer, uh, COVID-enforced restrictions continue to be relaxed in the Northeast but if you've been watching the news, uh, there's growing concern about the virus surge in certain southern and western parts of the U.S. Uh, In fact, on Thursday, it was a record-setting day in that there were 40,000 new cases announced in just one day. But you already know about that pandemic. Uh, What I'd like us to consider this morning is a different pandemic, uh, one that all of us are in danger of. uh, But this pandemic already has a cure that's been announced to us. And that is, what do you do when you find yourself having to battle a spiritual pandemic? Something that is very widespread, uh, but not as a physical virus, but we're talking about just a spiritual uh, battle uh, that we all find ourselves in. Uh, So I want you to turn to the book of Titus, And we've been looking at Titus' pastoral epistle. Uh, What's very important is, as Paul writes to Titus, this is not a letter just for a pastor. Uh, That what is said in this letter is intended for every elder, every pastor, but also every believer in Christ, every follower of Christ, and every church that seeks to honor Christ needs to understand this particular letter. Uh, But we're going to look this morning at dealing with a spiritual pandemic. And there's three sort of action words that will set off each of the points we're going to look at. The three action words would be identifying, discerning, and responding. Identifying, discerning, and responding. So I draw your attention to verse 10. And you'll see why I had us read verse 5 through 9, because it helps set what we see in verse 10. But in verse 10, we come to that first action word, and that is in the midst of a spiritual pandemic, identifying false teachers and false teaching. Identifying false teachers and false teaching. In verse 10, we read, For there are many, And then it goes on and describes these individuals. But stop and think of those first four words, for there are many. Is Paul telling Titus that he was also experiencing a spiritual pandemic in the church in Crete? And was this something that we could argue the church has been facing in increasing levels since its inception? Because the words for, there are many, tells us the prevalence of false teachers and false doctrine that has always been a part of a sinful world. Notice that in your translations, you might have verse 10 beginning with the conjunction for. Some have because, and either word you choose there says to you this is directly connected to the previous five verses. In other words, this explains The meticulous care that Paul said when you're picking elders, what their qualifications need to be. Why is that so important? Because there are many false teachers and false doctrines that will encounter the church. So that gives us a better understanding. Well, that's why Paul was so specific about the qualifications. For there are many. But you notice that In this description, you go down to verse 11, and it speaks not just of the prevalence, but the influence of these individuals and their teachings. In verse 11, we read, They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Think for a moment what it means that they are ruining whole households. And why would that be such an important issue? Well, even in ancient cultures, the household, as we studied months ago, was a very key factor in the life of the community. But if you think about it, where were the churches meeting at this point in time? In homes. So if this teaching is making its way and corrupting and pulling households away from the Lord, then in fact, you might as well say, it's going to pull the church away from the Lord because that's where the church, that's where believers are gathering together. So immediately we see there is an important step here in identifying false teachers and false teaching because of their prevalence, because of the tremendous influence that they exert in our world. Turn with me to the book of Matthew And it's no surprise where Paul is drawing this from. In Matthew chapter 24, you have a discussion of Jesus with his disciples in Matthew 24 about the end of the age. Uh, Imagine the scene here. They're coming out of the temple, Herod's temple, this magnificent, beautiful structure uh, that he ended up working on even right up until his death, and it wasn't completed to the mark that he wanted it to. Historians tell us that the front of it was plated in gold, so when the sun would come up and hit it, it would just stand out and reflect what Herod thought would be the glories of his architectural genius. So they're leaving that temple, and they ask Jesus, what what are going to be the signs of the end of the age? And so look with me at chapter 24, But verses 10 through 12, and keep in mind the word many, which Paul said to Titus, there are many false teachers, beginning at verse 12, and at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And we could clearly say most means many, not all. There is Jesus Christ reminding us that we should not be surprised at the fact that we will live in a world where we will see increasing opposition to the gospel. And sometimes our problem may be as a church and as individual Christians, we're just sort of have closed our eyes to that. It's not that it's not there. We we just have kind of grown lackadaisical toward discerning it, picking up on it, being aware of just destructive ideas that directly challenge biblical teaching. So identifying false teachers and false teaching is critical. But if you return to Titus chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul gives us a couple of words, a brief description of these false teachers. What you don't find in this letter is specifically a name for these false teachers. There's some characteristics we're given, but I think it's purposely left general. One is the audience would know who specifically Paul has in mind here. Titus would know. But it also enables us to apply this to different teachers, philosophies, ministries that I often done in the name of God that are not biblical. But look with me at verse 10 for the brief description that's given of these teachers and their teaching. For there are many rebellious people. Now, the word rebellious means unwilling to submit or obey. Not that they are ignorant of what the scriptures teach. They're unwilling to submit or obey. It's the same word used in chapter 1, verse 6, when he states that elders are not to have children who are disobedient, unwilling to submit. So that's the first description he says. This is generally about them. They are rebellious. Then the second term he says in verse 10, they're they're mere talkers. Uh, As persuasive as their teaching might seem, as the crowds that they contend to draw, there, there is no substance. No lasting content to the truth that they teach. Uh, It's it's empty. Uh, It is worthless discussions. What a refreshing reminder to us when we kind of look sometimes at ministries or individuals who appear to have celebrity status in the church and sort of realize for some of them, this is all that they'll get. This is it. There's no eternal weight to their teaching, no eternal glory to what they're doing. In essence, from God's perspective, it is chatter. It is empty, meaningless chatter. But then you go on to the third descriptive term. They are deceivers. They mislead. Not only are they themselves misled, but they mislead others which brings us to the clear danger of this, that they're leading others away from the truth and thinking they are saying what is true. Have you ever listened sometimes to someone who certainly is not teaching scripture and, and, and listen to them and realize they believe what they're saying and and they believe it is helpful, they, they believe it is true but if you hold it up against Scripture, it is clearly not true. They are deceived, and they are deceiving others. Uh, I want you to go to the book of 1 Timothy, and we'll we'll come back to Timothy, so if you want to keep your hand there, you can. But 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is another pastoral epistle, but this one is written to Timothy. Different location, Timothy is in Ephesus, Titus is in Crete, Uh, But we know from looking at the dating that both 1 Timothy and Titus were written about the same time. So I want to draw something out in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. In other words, Paul tells Timothy in a different location, you also are dealing with a prevalence of false teaching and false teachers. You need to be teaching your congregation and yourself to be identifying those individuals. Because listen to the description of them, and right away you'll see, this sounds a lot like the ones Titus is dealing with, but it's not the same people. Beginning at verse 7, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies these promote controversies rather than god's work which is by faith the goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk they want to be teachers of the law but they do not know what they are talking about or what they are so confidently affirming. Empty talkers, deceivers. So, two different locations, Ephesus and Crete, but the same reality, which says to us, we can live in the Northeast in a small community, does not mean we are exempt from teaching that is contrary to Scripture, that we need to be identifying false teaching and false teachers. That, that is a critical step for the church. Look back at Titus chapter 1, and Paul gives us one other paradoxical portrait of these false teachers in verse 16. He says, They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. He will say almost the same thing to Timothy when he says, they will have a form of godliness, but they will be denying its power. They, they will believe they're spiritual. They will believe they're saying what is true, what is helpful, what will lead you towards truth. But it's, it's a lie. Titus' world is no different than our world. We may argue the degree and intensity perhaps has increased as we are so much more closer to the Lord's return, but it's the same reality. We, we can relate or we should be able to relate and say this is something we need to listen to. So identifying the false teachers and teaching that is a part of our world, that's the first action that we're given. But the second action term is discerning. But what do we need to be discerning? Well, we need to be discerning of false teachers and their teaching. Since it can come in many different forms, how can we be more discerning of it? Well, let's look at verses 11 and 12 of Titus chapter 1. Paul writes, they must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, I want to clarify something here, and I don't think anyone here would maybe make this error, but it's worth repeating. To clarify the difference between believers who disagree on matters of indifference and false teachers. Like, there is a big difference between two Christians who maybe have a different conviction over worship styles. So you don't want to confuse that and be like, well, they're a false teacher. They don't agree with what I understand Scripture teaches. No, Titus and Timothy, under Paul's direction, are dealing with those who are presenting teaching that is contrary to solid biblical basic doctrines related to salvation, related to the nature of God and His Word and the exclusive claims of Christ. And I think in a world today where everyone wants to be accepting of each other's opinion, and opinion is my truth, as many people say, we as believers want to understand Christians can disagree on matters of indifference that are not related to salvation. In fact, Paul tells us that that will be a distinguishing mark of the church, our unity in Christ in the midst of differences of conviction and how we need to act in love out of those differences. We're blessed that not in our church, but in some churches, the whole issue of how to come back after COVID and wearing masks is a divisive issue. There's some Christians that are very much at odds with one another and expressing that is a testimony to our unity and our willingness to say, we want to act in love. Maybe you don't want to wear a mask, it's uncomfortable, Uh, you feel warm in it, but you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you're willing to set aside your own personal right to not do that out of a greater responsibility in love towards Christ. So Paul, when he writes to Timothy about discerning false teachers and false teaching, is not addressing that issue. But he's addressing, as he mentions here in verse 10 at the end of this, that that some of this group is associated with those of the circumcision group, which tells us there's sort of a Jewish component to this, which maybe reminds us why is it so difficult to discern truth from error? Because often the error has truth mixed in with it. And in this case, if some of this teaching is coming from either Jews or Jewish Christians are behind some of this or getting caught up in it, then the challenge would be the Old Testament is God's Word. And and how do you know when you're taking something and misapplying it and elevating it to a level that it should not have? And so as we come to that matter, the question we should be thinking about is, who or what determines what is right teaching? It's easy for us to say we need to discern the difference between false teaching and false teachers, but, but who determines that? It's not based on a congregational vote. It's not based on forming some committee that will look into it and then report back to us on their findings. I think part of the answer you see in verses 1 through 3 of Titus is true teaching fits the pattern of preaching entrusted to the apostles. In other words, it lines up with the gospel. It lines up with the definition and standard of Scripture. This is why if you've heard the phrase, the canon of Scripture, the word canon was taken and applied to the Bible because the word canon meant standard, measuring line. It's the measuring line that we always go back to that's objective and unchanging. And so, as we're discerning truth from error, it is the gospel and the scriptures that we go back to to check it against. And Paul gives Titus and us some red flags. What, what do you look for when, when you kind of are wondering is this a false teaching? Is this person a false teacher? Are they being led astray? Are they leading others astray? Let me point out a few red flags in verse 10, which we just read, that they are of the circumcision group. One red flag is if they're presenting anything that talks about salvation or forgiveness, meaning Christ plus something else. If there's any sort of means in which you're saying, yes, you can be forgiven of your sins, uh, it is important to read the Bible, plus this, that right away should say to us, it's Christ alone. It's Christ's death. Talk to a Jehovah Witness, and what will they tell you you need? They'll say you need to read your Bible. They'll encourage you to read the Bible you have to them. But they'll say you also need Our Bible. You need to look at the truths that have been better explained in our Bible, which is more accurate. You need to be a part of the true Church, Jehovah's Witnesses. And you can go right down the line through any group and say, if there's any illusion, direct or indirect to, you need Christ plus. Right away, that should say to you, false teacher, false teaching. That's what he's alerting Titus to, and he's alerting Titus to tell your congregation this. Which would imply to us that I think often false teaching comes to us in a very attractive mode and appearance, very persuasive manner. Doesn't come to us dressed up in some kind of red horned suit with a pitchfork that we could pick out right away and say, Oh, red flag but it's deceiving. So that would be one red flag. Notice in verse 12 and verse 16, a second red flag is where profession contradicts practice. So you notice in verse 12, he mentions a Cretan saying. Uh, Now, when he says, one of your own prophets, he's not saying here, one of your own Cretans who's been sent by God but he's using the word prophets in a broad way, um, those who claim to receive divine messages, uh, those who are philosophers. So, on that line, Aristotle, Socrates, would have been commonly called prophets, claiming they're receiving some messages uh, from, from outside sources. But he uses this common saying, probably from Epimenes, one of their poets, that Cretans had this reputation In other words, their claims were canceled out by their character. And any time we hear a teaching or see someone teaching something, but their life does not match what they're teaching, that's a red flag. So much so that in verse 16, Paul is even more clearly on that. By their actions, they deny him. They proclaim Christ. They speak of God. They talk about Him very eloquently. But but look how they live. Look at the fruit of their life. This is an excellent test for, for us to apply to ourselves, certainly, but to any message we hear. Notice in verse 14, it says that the hope is by Presenting the truth, they will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the commands of those who reject the truth. And I kind of put that together in a third red flag here. Anytime you hear a teaching or a group who focuses or is fascinated with a minor part of scripture or the silence of scripture on a certain aspect, that's a red flag. So notice he says, one of the things about this group, they're they're fascinated with Jewish myths. Part of this may be their fascination with some of the Old Testament patriarchs, what we know of their life, but, but then even moving beyond that, what else can we find out? And going to other sources and claiming that somehow those other sources now have the same authority as God's word. So Jewish myths he mentions there and the commands of those who reject the truth. A subtle danger when the authority of the person presenting the teaching supersedes the authority of God's word. That's a red flag. And it's amazing how easily it can happen where people who sometimes profess faith in Christ And maybe even only God knows we're walking with Christ at one time, can be easily sucked off into some false teaching where the authority of the person exceeds the authority of God's word. And then in verse 15, we have one final red flag to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. What Paul's getting at here is a distortion on the teaching of the nature of sin and forgiveness. In other words, this group is placing purity and what it means to be holy based on the wrong things. So, it has a form of asceticism to it, it would be well, if you avoid these certain foods. If you do circumcision, if you do this and this, that makes you right with God. Is that how one deals with sin in their life? By just, we do certain things and it's canceled out? Or is the message of the gospel, which Paul started this letter with to Titus, that that's not the gospel? The gospel is you're saved by grace. It should transform you and be evident by actions but it's not your actions that cancel out your sin or that make one pure. This was the very era Jesus had to encounter with the religious leaders when he said to them, you're all focused on the wrong thing. Holiness is not what you do to the cup that you drink from. It's not the plate that you eat from. It's not how many times you wash it, how you circle the water around it. That's not what makes that pure. Purity and holiness is an inward state of heart that is reflected outwardly. And we live in a day and an age where you will have people, even now, attending worship in other places and churches who are thinking this is what makes them holy. They went to church. They read their Bible. They they did the right thing. But what a subtle and deceptive error that wasn't just in Titus' day, but is a red flag today. So we need to look at these and say, we need to be discerning of false teachers and false doctrines. Because that can happen outside the church. It can even happen, sadly, as here within the church If we go to the other extreme and say, well, I'm saved by grace, I don't need to do anything. I don't need to read the Bible. Uh, I don't need to pursue Christ on a daily basis. That is a lie. That is an error that is just as destructive. So we've looked at identifying the false teachers and false teaching. We've looked at discerning now the false teachers and teachings based on the gospel. And that brings us now to responding to false teachers and false teaching. Because if this is a letter not just for pastors, but for every follower of Christ, for every church, then it's calling us to give some kind of response. Not just nod our head and say, Yep, that's our world. You got it right, Titus. Jesus, you were you were right. You you knew what was coming. But but what is our response to this to be? And so look with me at verse 11. Verse 11, he says, they must be silenced. In other words, there is an explicit response to expose what is false and to declare what is true. The word silence there means to to literally be gagged, to, to stop their mouths. And I think where Paul's going with this is Titus can't walk around Crete and try to prevent people from teaching these things outside the church. But Titus has a responsibility to make sure those teachings don't get into the church. To be able to address those in different venues. And that would be the same for you and for me. We can't prevent our world, which is focused on running from God, from teaching the things that they do. It comes out of their nature. But we can refute those teachings and declare what is true. Notice as well, you see in verse 13, he says, following the testimony about the Cretans, he says, Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith. Now, He's already said that one of the tasks of an elder is to be able to rebuke. And we mentioned the other week, the word rebuke there, or as some translations have in the NIV, encourage is somewhat misleading because it's a very strong word. Uh, It means to exhort, uh, to give a passionate plea and appeal to respond to this. And that's what Paul is saying to Titus. Titus, you need to rebuke this Sharply, you need to plead with these people and remind them this is a spiritual pandemic that is going to lead them directly to hell unless their heart is changed by God. Tell them that message don't don't shy away from it, don't kind of be worried about your job, your job security and Crete. Uh, this is the message that you need to Declare, exhort them. But you notice something very interesting in verse 13 at the very end. Do this, why? With the hope that they will be brought back to sound teaching in the faith. Isn't that always the goal of exhortation? Not not to leave you feeling worse when you leave church than when you came in, but that you might be convicted and then say, you know what, I've fallen short in this area. By God's grace, I I need to know how to better declare what is the Word of God, how to talk about that in a way that makes sense to those people who don't have a Bible background, but does not compromise what I understand the Word of God teaches. And so, part of responding is to expose what is wrong. What is wrong with wanting to embrace the teaching of other religions? On one surface, that sounds like such a humane thing to do. You know, let's stop all the arguing. Let's everybody pick and choose. We all have different tastes. But what's at the root of that? The root of that is that Christ is not absolutely necessary that there are other ways that you could find salvation and forgiveness of sin. When you put that out there like that, that should strike you as, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's a lie. Why why would I want to lie to someone about such an important, life-changing matter? But we also see in Paul's words to Titus, and I, and I don't say this to be trite. Uh, we've all seen this now, uh, all different variations of it right now with, with Black Lives Matter. But I'd like to take that to a whole new level, not just All Lives Matter, which that's become trite for some. But But how about seriously thinking about this? All souls matter. That Paul's instruction to Titus and to you and me about false teachers and false teaching is not to give you tools to win an argument. I think sometimes as Christians, we, we look at this and we want to know, apologetically, how can I argue someone? How, how can I show them they're wrong? If, if that's your only thought as to why Paul's telling Titus this, then you're missing that all souls matter. Now, the purpose here is not that Titus would go back and be able to equip his people to win arguments against false teachers, but that by God's grace, their souls would be one to Christ. That they would come to know that gospel that Paul says, I preach in verses one through three, that has been entrusted to me. And you get a, a very strong feel for this. And something Paul says in Philippians chapter three, If you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, you may know a little bit about Paul's ministry in Philippi. Uh, There were some great high notes. You have the conversion of Lydia. You have the conversion of the Philippian jailer. But then you also have Paul being beaten and arrested in Philippi. Uh, Then them kind of coming back and sort of apologizing uh, and wanting to send Paul out again Um, But that's the church that he's writing to in Philippians. But look closely at Philippians 3 and listen to verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. You read that, you think, wow, Paul's pretty upset. He's he's calling out the false teachers and saying, 'You're, you're mutilating By your emphasis on circumcision, you're mutilating yourself, but more than that, you're mutilating the truth and message of salvation. But then go down to verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3, because that tone is explained by his concern for all souls. He says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. What a reminder how we should view false teachers and false teaching. That we want to refute it, we need to expose it, but we should do so with a tear in our eyes because we're talking about souls, talking about individuals who are lost in deception
1: and in lies.
0: And in fact, we too would be where they are, if not by God's grace. Sort of relevant message to us in the world that we live in, that there's greater pandemics than COVID, identifying, discerning and responding May we kind of ask ourselves always, do do, I have a heart for God's truth? And do I have a heart for those who are false teachers and absorbed in false teaching? Heather knows who I'm referring to. We have some good friends who have a daughter uh, who clearly got caught up in a, a religious kind of cult, uh, a very disturbing thing. Uh, but in listening to a recent podcast that she did, I was struck by the reality that she came out of that religious cult, which was filled with all kinds of sinful issues, but then really has placed herself by following another lie and, and kind of praising the human spirit and the warrior within. And yet I read this week in Psalms where God says, it's not warriors that your confidence should be in. That means nothing to God. It is your fear of God. It is your love for God in Christ. As you must always be knowledgeable, if one is not delivered from error into Christ, they're merely moving from one lie to embracing another. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you that you not only know our hearts and you know our need, but Lord, the scriptures over and over again tell us that you know the world. And so as we anticipate and look forward to your return, Lord, may we heed the instruction that Titus was to take back to the believers in Crete that we are to take back with us into our homes, into our community, most importantly, into our hearts. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.